The passage for this morning's sermon is Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Again, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22 is the passage for our sermon this morning. This is the Word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you once again for your word and for this portion of it that we are privileged to consider this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees and with the Herodians. We thank you, Lord, that he affirmed civil government. But more importantly, O Lord, we thank you that the Pharisees and the Herodians unwittingly affirmed that Jesus Christ is true, and that He is the truth, and that He speaks truthfully. We pray, dear Lord, that You would teach us what this means this morning. We ask, Lord, for Your Word to illumine our hearts, that Your Spirit, Lord, would give us understanding, and that Your Word, aided by Your Spirit, would conform us to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you will remember if you uh, look back over the previous passages that after a barrage of strongly worded parables that Jesus has launched at the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, the religious leaders begin to plot how they can take Jesus down. They want to take him out. They have perceived that he's speaking about them. They perceive that he's a true threat to them and they want to do him in. Now these leaders, these religious leaders of the temple, these religious leaders in Jerusalem and throughout Israel, they have consistently shown that though they ought to know all about the coming of the Messiah, though they ought to know all of the signs and the marks that Jesus is the Messiah, they don't know. And so they don't know nearly as much as they think they know. Now the Pharisees, we've got to remember, have been plotting against Jesus at least since Matthew chapter 12. There in that chapter, Jesus uh, healed the hand of this, this man who had a withered hand. And he did it in the temple. And he did it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were unhappy that he'd restored this man and his hand to full use. They were angry. And it says in Matthew chapter 12, 14, that the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. They had been gunning for him at least since that time, if not before. Now, in their present scheme, the Pharisees have very unlikely co-conspirators. Verse 16 says that they sent their disciples, 
uh, some junior Pharisees, perhaps, along with the Herodians, to seek out Jesus, to entangle him, to trap him, is what the word means. The Pharisees were uh, a group of people who strongly opposed the occupation uh, of Israel by Rome. They strongly opposed these Roman soldiers with their boots on the ground or their sandals on the ground in Israel, and they wanted them out. The Herodians, however, they supported Herod and Antipas. They supported the Herodian dynasty, and this dynasty was propped up by Rome. It was the Romans who kept Herod's family in power. And so these two disparate groups, these uh, very different uh, groups, approach Jesus with one goal in mind. They want to trap him. They want to trip him up. They want to bring him down. They're trying to put him in a dilemma. And they ask a simple question. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But in the middle of their attempt to entrap Jesus, as they're buttering him up, they speak something about Jesus that is quite true. The problem is, they don't believe it. They were simply trying to flatter him. In verse 16, they say, Teacher, we know that you are, the true, that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Now, we've got to maintain, we've got to understand right here, it will become very clear in a few moments' time, but we've got to maintain right here that they don't believe this. They don't agree with this. They will later prove when they have, cru- have Jesus crucified, that they do not think that there is any truth about Jesus at all. But their statement, whether they believe it or not, is true. They did get it right. A stop clock gets the time right at least twice a day, and the Pharisees got it right here. Jesus is true. And to take it further, He is the truth. Truth with a capital T. But there's a difference between saying it and believing it with full conviction. And by seeking to entrap Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians showed that their ultimate allegiance was not to God. It was not to Jesus, nor was it to Rome. Their ultimate allegiance was to themselves and their own power and their desire to hold on to it. Well, after uh, what has amounted to a lengthy introduction, I want you to consider this as we work our way through this passage this morning. Just as you give to Caesar the taxes that are due to him, so you must worship God. You must worship him in the way that worship is due to him through Jesus Christ. Just as you give to Caesar the taxes that are due to him, so you must worship God with the worship that is due to his holy name through Jesus Christ. I've divided this passage into two sections, verses 15 to 17, the way and the truth. And verses 18 to 22, Jesus truly knows. Verses 15 to 17, the way and the truth. And verses 18 to 22, Jesus truly knows. So let's look at this first section, these first few verses. The Pharisees have been plotting as we've seen since chapter 12, since Jesus healed this man with a withered hand. But that was far from Jerusalem. It was up in the region around the Galilean Sea. Now Jesus is in their territory. For the first time, he's back in Jerusalem in many, many years, as far as Matthew's gospel is concerned. He's on their home turf. And so the Pharisees send some of their disciples, together with some of these Herodians, to try to trap him in his talk. They begin by trying to soften their target. They bombard Jesus with flattery. They say to him, Teacher, Rabbi, we know that you are true. 
and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Listen to these things that they're saying. They know that he's true. They know that he teaches God's word truthfully. They don't care what other people think. He doesn't care what other people think about him. He's going to say what needs to be said. And so, they're going to pose a question to him and they're going to expect him to give a candid answer. Now, other people may truly believe these things about Jesus that these, these men, this group of, uh, of people are saying to him. They may truly believe that Jesus is true and that he speaks the way of God truthfully. But the true two groups before him certainly did not believe this. But again, in spite of uh, what they believe, whether they believe it or not, their words are true. Everything they said about Jesus was true. Everything they said was correct, even though they didn't believe it. But they are saying these things so that Jesus will let down his guard. They're trying uh, to numb him with their words. And after they think they've prepped the target enough, they hit him with their question. Tell us then, you who are truthful and doesn't care if, people, uh, if you hurt people's feelings with your opinion. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now in their thinking, there are two ways to answer this question. Jesus could say that the Jews should not pay taxes to Caesar. That is an occupation. They didn't ask for this. They have no business paying taxes to Caesar. This would allow the Pharisees to say that he supports Rome. Instead of be, uh, that he would be charged as an insurrectionist. He doesn't support Rome. He supports Israel. And the Herodians would come after him. Or Jesus could promote Caesar. He could say, yes, you must pay taxes. This is what is right and proper to do. And this would allow the Pharisees to come after him and say that he doesn't care about Israel at all. He would lose the popular support of the people. But either way, this group thinks they've got him trapped. They think they've got him. Now let's step back for a moment. Now that we've gotten to the question that they've posed to Jesus, let's step back. It is clear that not only the religious leaders in Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, and the elders, but also the political groups, the Herodians and others, they saw Jesus as a threat. And they desired to take him down. This is nothing new for Jesus. Herod the Great sought to take Jesus out when he was a baby, just after he had been born. When the Magi came, they sought out Herod. They wanted to find the king of Israel. And Herod said... Well, let me know where he is when you find him. And then after the the, the Magi went on, Herod sent troops into Bethlehem and slaughtered every male child, two years old and under. He saw Jesus as a threat. He saw him as a danger to his position of power. He poses such a threat to them that these opposing groups, these two groups who have nothing in common, are joining together to fight against him. And by the end of Matthew's gospel, there are going to be even even more groups who are joining up in order to take Jesus out. The truth is always fearsome to those who live by deception. The truth is always, it's always dangerous to people who desire to live in the darkness. And Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life, not only was fearsome to those who opposed him in his day, he continues to be fearsome to those who oppose him today. 
people still, still get fearful when Jesus Christ is truly proclaimed. When, G- when we proclaim Christ as He is presented in Scripture, in the fullness of Scripture, He will make people fearful. He is pure truth. There is no darkness in Him, and sinners are naturally inclined to flee from Him. John chapter 1, verse 5 says that He is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome Him. And so though the Pharisees and the Herodians and every other power group in Israel opposed Him, they could not overcome Him. Even though in just a few days from this time, in this narrative, they would have him put to death, he would gain the victory. And because of his death and his resurrection, sinners who believe in him and repent of their sins will know the truth. If you believe in him and you repent of your sins, you will know the truth whose name is Jesus Christ. Well, let's look now at verses 18 to 22. These disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they came to Jesus, they tried to butter him up with flattery before they asked him their question. But Jesus knew their hearts because he is the searcher of hearts. He knew that their flattery was camouflaging their deeper interests, their own deceptive hearts. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, uh, he's aware of their malice, and he says, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He knows. He knows that they're being two-faced. He knows that they're saying things about Him that they do not believe. Jesus knew that they were trying to, uh, trying to trap Him. So in response to their question, in verse 19, He told them to show Him the coin for the tax. And they brought Him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to Him, Caesar's. Now, the coin that they produced was most likely the silver denarius of Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor at that time. He died in AD 37. And this coin was uh, in circulation in that period. It had the image of Caesar Tiberius on the front. It had the image of uh, Tiberius's mother on the back. And the coin was directly related to Roman emperor worship, as all of the coins of that time were. It bore the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And by virtue of being son of the divine Augustus, he was divine himself, or so he said. It and other coins of this time were used to promote emperor worship. And it was the emperor who controlled the production of the coins. The emperor produced them. The the emperor ultimately owned these coins. They were officially his property. The money belonged to Caesar. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the inhabitants of Jerusalem preferred death before they would allow a flag bearing uh, the the, the image of Caesar to come into Jerusalem. But they would carry coins in their pockets with his image and this inscription claiming that he was divine. They had scruples about flags, but apparently not about coins. We've got to understand this. It was true that the Jews had to use this coin. They had to use it to pay the poll tax. This was the the coin that was required to pay this specific tax that every man and woman had to pay in Israel. And every Roman province, for that matter. But why would any Jew hold on to these coins unnecessarily? Wouldn't they just exchange money, their money, their currency for this type of coin, pay the tax and be done with it? Why did one of them have it in their pocket? Why was one of them able to produce it? 
If they have such religious scruples, why do they carry it around? If they truly found emperor worship offensive, they could have simply exchanged their own currency at the time it was needed and paid the tax. So here we have the king of Israel, the true king of Israel, who is in reality the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he's standing here inspecting this coin with the image, a replica of an image, of Caesar Tiberius. He could have rightfully said here that he had no need to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar owed taxes to him. He's the king of the universe. It is by Jesus Christ that his authority was derived. But he didn't. In verse 21, he says, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Caesar produced the coins. They were his property. Jesus says to simply give, to, give back to Caesar what belongs to him. But it was the king of kings who put Caesar in his place in the first place. Well, this is what Romans 13 teaches us. You see that at the top of your bulletins. That all governing authorities receive their authority from God. All civil governments have been established and instituted by God. And in Romans 13, we're instructed not to resist authorities because we're resisting what God has appointed. Civil government bears the power of the sword to punish wrongdoers. Civil government bears the sword to prevent bad conduct. That is why God has established it. He set it up. And so Jesus, even though as God, he has established the authority of Caesar, he will submit to that authority. Just as he paid the temple tax back in chapter 17, we can trust that he would also pay this poll tax every single year. And we can assume that the Pharisees and the Herodians would pay the poll tax as well. Jesus is saying that just as we are bound to render unto Caesar what is his, so also we are bound to render unto God what is his. And when, Jesus, when they heard Jesus' words, verse 22 says that they marveled at them and they went away. They surprised him. They weren't able to entrap him in the way that they had hoped. For Caesar, for the civil government, we are bound to render taxes. For God, what are we to render? When Jesus says, render to God what is God's, what does he mean there? He means worship. Remember the overall context. Jesus has been talking about the corrupt worship that's taking place in the temple. We're just a chapter away from when Jesus cleansed the temple, when he drove out those who were corrupting its worship. He's condemned the leaders of the temple over and over again because the worship has been degraded. Their worship is no longer true. It's no longer faithful. We are required to render worship to God. Now, certainly these uh, ancient rulers... These Roman rulers were not, who promoted emperor worship, they didn't render to God what belonged to him. But even they, even they had to give an account. Even they were demanded, commanded to render worship to the true God. And so many rulers and many regular folks today fail to worship the living and true God. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to be held guilty for failing to render worship to the true God. Just as Jesus said back in chapter 4, verse 10, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 13, You shall worship the Lord, your God, and, on, and Him only shall you serve. 
All men everywhere are required to worship God, whether they ultimately do so or not. That is the requirement. That is the standard. And there is only one way to render worship to God. There's only one way to render to God what belongs to Him. And that is to worship Him through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Worship is not acceptable if it does not come through Jesus Christ and in His name. The silver denarius it might have, uh, that was handed to Jesus, it might have contained the replica of the image of Tiberius, but Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God. And when he walked to the face of the earth, he represented God completely and totally. In Colossians 1, uh, 16 and 17 goes on to say, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler. And everyone owes worship to Him and through Him. But we who believe in Him are able to worship God because now He is the exact representation, the exact image of man at the Father's right hand in the heavenly courts. Even now, He sits at the right hand of God the Father and He intercedes on behalf of His people. That is why we're able to worship the Lord, because Jesus sits in the flesh right now, interceding. And so this is why we must self-consciously worship God through Jesus Christ. It's a self-conscious act. And what does it mean? It means that others who do not worship God through Jesus Christ do not worship God. They don't worship the true God, and they do not worship God truly. It is a false God that they have created by their own hands that they worship. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says this, Through him then, Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews is speaking about there, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It is through Jesus that you praise God. It is only through Jesus that we can worship God. And it is only in the name of Christ that we are to pray to God. Now, praying in the name of Christ isn't, as the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it, simply a bare uh, mentioning of His name. In other words, it isn't enough simply to say, in Jesus' name, amen. Praying in Jesus' name is fully recognizing that it is only through Jesus Christ that our prayers reach God at all. Jesus is our advocate in the courtroom of of the Most High God. He is our mediator in the temple of God. It is through Him that our words reach the ears of the Father. It is through Jesus and Him alone that all of our worship, all of our prayers must pass. And so it is necessary that we believe in Jesus in order for our worship to be acceptable and for our prayers to be heard by God. That is the prerequisite. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to the Father. As Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 say, Since then we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You and I, we have no business coming before the Lord in and of ourselves. We stand naked before Him. All of our sin is exposed to Him. It is only through Jesus Christ that we may approach the throne of grace. It is only through Jesus Christ that God's throne of judgment is a throne of grace for those who believe. It is only through Jesus Christ, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. This language sounds exclusive. This language is not popular today in our world. When we say these things, we're excluding other people who do not name the name of Christ. We are saying that they can't worship God truly. We're saying that they can't pray to God. That's right. It is exclusive. It's an exclusive claim, and you can't water this down. When you do, you no longer have Christianity. This is what we believe. Jesus Christ is the only way. And so, this passage, it teaches us that we are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. In Jesus' day, the only way the poll tax could be rendered to Caesar was to use the coin that Caesar himself provided. But this passage also teaches us to render to God what is God's. And the only way that worship, which is what we are to render to Him, the only way that worship can be rendered unto God is through Jesus Christ. And this can only happen. This can only happen when you know, when you truly believe that He is the truth. When you truly believe in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins. How do you render what is due to God? You render it to Him by believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. This is the promise of Scripture. And this is what the Lord holds out before us today. Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank You. We thank You that You've taught us from Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have made exclusive claims, but You have told us precisely how we are to come to You, how we are enabled to worship You. And so we pray, dear Lord, that we would always, only, ever worship you through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and that you would continue to build up our faith and continue to enable us, O oh Lord, to repent of our sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.